0: You're listening to audio from Living Grace Church in Tyler, Texas. To find out more about Living Grace, go to livinggracetexas.org. The passage for today's sermon is found in Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34, and it says this, Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. So Acts chapter 16, uh, Pastor Isaac read uh, that passage. And so uh, just a little bit, right? Paul and Silas are in prison and they were singing hymns at midnight. They were singing praises. Uh, And so as I was reading through this passage, and I was like, you know, I think this would be a good one for us to go through because there's a lot of good themes, a lot of good things in here. Uh, But one of the most common themes that we'll see in this passage and what I want to emphasize today is prayer. That there's a lot of things I want to show you a little bit more about prayer and a better understanding of prayer, Uh, but more so who we're praying to. Uh, So Paul and Silas find themselves in prison But what had put them there, right? We don't know the context unless you know the story, unless you read, but I want to go back a little bit and go over the context of why Paul and Silas have found themselves there in prison, singing hymns, beaten, bloody, all in chains. Why were they there? And so if we go back to the beginning of the chapter of Acts chapter 16, we see that Paul and Silas, starting in verse 13, were headed to the river as a place Of prayer, and when they had gotten there, they came upon a woman named Lydia. And so let's read verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I love that verse right there in verse 14, that the Lord had opened her heart to pay attention we then see that she got saved and she invited them for a place to stay. And so we see God, just in this small little verse here, right, we see the goodness of God that he provided for Paul and Silas, a place for them to stay as they're going around the world, spreading the good news of the gospel, not knowing where they're going to stay, how it's going to work out, and yet they go to a place of prayer. And in that place of prayer, they find a woman who then God provides salvation. And so we see God is such a good provider. And so Paul and Silas, they go back to the same spot, right? They go back a few days later, they go back, and they go back to the place of prayer. And so the first question I want you to ask yourself this morning is this, how often do you find yourself going to the place of prayer? How often do you find yourself going to the place of Of prayer, because here next in the story, we'll see the enemy, right? Satan, the demonic forces, they send a girl demon possessed to go and get at the apostles. And so, does the enemy in your life know where to send his forces? Right? Just a simple question, right? Does the enemy know where you're going to be? Does the enemy know how often you go to prayer? Does the enemy know the places you like to go to just go and spend time with the Lord so that He can go and cause an obstruction? Or is it the fact that maybe there's not a place of prayer in our lives, and so there's no reason for the enemy to even come and distract us from prayer and put an obstruction in our way, because there's no reason to altogether. Do you know do you go to a place of prayer? If you go back to the story of Daniel before he was thrown in the lion's den, what happens, right, is that he's going and they say, Hey, you know, anybody, there's just people that try to get a hold of him and trying to like get him in trouble. And so they say, Hey, they go to the king, Hey, sign this edict, sign this decree that if anybody worships any other God, that you throw them into the lion's den. And he forgot about Daniel. And so, but Daniel, everybody knew that Daniel went to the same place three times a day and would go the same time and open the windows so that everybody can see and know and he didn't do it because he was just trying to prove something he did it because he wanted to spend time with the Lord he realized how much he needed prayer and so what happens they knew exactly where his place of prayer was and so they go they find him goes the lion's den and God shuts the mouths of lions so once again how often do you find yourself going to the place of prayer Does the enemy know where to send his forces? Is there a reason in your life for the enemy to send an obstruction for your prayer life? Paul Miller, a great author, wrote one of my favorite books on prayer called A Praying Life. He says this about prayer. Many people struggle to learn how to pray because they are focusing on praying, not on God. Making prayer the center is like making conversation the center of a family mealtime. In prayer, focusing on the conversation is like trying to drive while looking at the windshield instead of through it. It freezes us, making us unsure of where to go. Conversation is only the vehicle through which we experience one another. Consequently, prayer is not the center. Getting to know a person, God, is the center of our life. And so you see, too often maybe the issue that we have with prayer is that we're focusing so much on the idea of prayer, the discipline of prayer, our lack of prayer, that we miss altogether the idea that we're supposed to be spending time with God and getting to know Him and getting to understand what He wants for our life and what He has for us and what He wants to do with our lives, right? But too often we're so focused on whether or not we are a good Christian and we're doing the right things and we miss the relationship of God all together. We miss getting to know God on a deeper level all together because the goal isn't just to pray and say some magic words. No, it's to go and converse with God. It's not to add some spiritual money right into your account, some spiritual credit into your account so that when you have a bad day, you're like, oh, but I prayed, so you know what, no big deal. I, you know, God, I got a little extra prayer in there, so if something bad happens, I don't have to worry about it because I got a little bit extra in the account. That's not how prayer works, right? It's not the point of prayer. It's to go and fix our eyes on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's to go and lift others up in our prayers it's to go to bat for them. It's to intercede and prevail for them. It's to go and confess our sins of trying to go and be God and use God's creation to satisfy us, to try to satisfy us, rather than God himself. It's to remind ourselves that everything is going to be okay, not because we just pray, but because it's who we're praying to. It's not just that you pray and life just works. No, no, it's that. When you pray, you are acknowledging that, man, I cannot do this by myself, and I am a horrible God, and I can never play God. And so, God, I need you to be God, and I thank you that you're always going to be God. And this is why I come to pray to remind myself that it's going to be okay. And if I'm okay in this moment, then I'm going to lift up somebody else in my life that I love because they may not feel like it's okay. And I'm asking God, that he would show them that he can only satisfy them as well in their life. And so we see prayer is not about us. So we're praying to the sovereign God, the one and only God. Paul Miller continues and he says, If God is sovereign, then he is in control of all the details of my life. If he is loving, then he is going to be shaping the details of my life for my good. If he is all wise, then he's not going to do everything I want because I don't know what I need. If he is patient, then he is going to take time to do all this. When we put all these things together, God's sovereignty, his love, wisdom, patience, we have this beautiful divine story. You see, a life of prayer one who goes to a place of prayer, one who understands their need for God. A life of prayer, someone says this, they could, or it sounds like this, Lord, my marriage isn't where I want it to be, but I know you're still working. I know you're still doing something. A life of prayer says, my sickness isn't progressing the way I want it to be, but I know you're still there. My depression still hasn't left me, but I'm going to sing these songs I'm not over this addiction quite yet, but yet I know that you're leading me. My heart is still hurting, but I know you're my comforter. Only one who has spent time with the Lord knows God in this way. You see, there's a line you eventually cross in Christianity where you realize no matter what's in front of you, no matter what's going on, no matter the trial, no matter the the obstacle, no matter whatever it is, is that God is there. And you always remind yourself of that. God is there. God's going to take care of it. God is faithful. God is good. And God is always involved. You see, a life of sitting with God, reading his word to know what he's like, will benefit you more than you ever realize, right? These habits of prayer are benefiting you more than you'll ever realize, um, just earlier this week, Elisha, my son, he's about to be four, and uh, he just just this past week, uh, I think it's past week. What, every night we, are, you know, he has a normal routine. You know, we put him to bed, brush his teeth, put him to bed or try to, and then I read him a story. And then he wants another story, so I read him like three stories, and he wants to look at the pictures. And so at the end, I always say, "Okay, Bubba, it's time to go night night. Now let's pray," is what I always tell him. And so then this past week, somewhere in the past week. When I said, okay, let's pray, he says, no. And I was like, what? He goes, no, 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 I pray. And I was like, what? And so he, I was like, okay, you pray. So then he says, I mean, a little bit gibberish. He's got a speech delay, but a little gibberish. But he says, and then you can hear Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And then he starts listing off all, like, he calls uh, the church. He goes to Mother's Day out. He calls it Turtle Church because they have a turtle in the aquarium. And he says, thank you for Turtle Church. Thank you for our church, this church. And then he starts, he says, pizza. He says, mom, baby, sissy uh, daddy. And then he says, ah, man, this is every single time. It's the cutest thing. And he, eventually, right, depending on the day, he'll mention somebody else's name. But all of these years of us praying for him at night, not thinking he knows, you know, more so because sometimes we're frustrated with him and we're like, Lord, save this kid. That's usually we're praying right in front of him. Lord, save him, fix his attitude, fix it. Uh, but yet in this moment, right, we got to see a small glimpse that something was paying off, right? that this repetition actually is starting to do. He's not saved, right? He doesn't know the Lord, he doesn't know the gospel, he doesn't know his depravity of sin, but yet he has this inclination, the Lord is working on his heart through our prayers for him that now he is enjoying and wanting to pray and he doesn't know, he just thinks it's something we do, but eventually, right, it's that this habit is paying off in the same way as that you may feel like it's going nowhere and that your prayers are pointless, And that your prayers mean nothing, but yet God never forgets a single prayer you have ever prayed. And sometimes the answer to that prayer is yes, but it may be 20 years from now. It may be 10 years from now. We don't know when that yes is going to become visible to us, but it doesn't mean that God is ever not working. He's always working. Know this today, right? That the older you get, Right? These moments with God, is I'm not saying that things will just work out the way you want. That's not the promise. Right? There's going to be moments of doubt. But the older you get in Christ, these moments start to transform into this deep feeling of when you feel those moments of doubt, you feel those moments that God isn't there, that God doesn't care, that God isn't doing anything, that you have this deep know within you that says, God, I know you're going to come through. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I know you. And that's all I can hold on to in this moment. I don't know how it will end. I don't know when it will pass, how it will get fixed. But Lord, I know you. Same thing, right, for all of us today. All the storms will eventually pass. All of the fires will eventually cease. All your tears will eventually be wiped away. And God is making all things do, and we hold on to that when we pray. So Paul and Silas, they go back to the place of prayer, probably thinking, wow, right? We had a conversion yesterday. It was good. Met Lydia, got a place to stay. If we go back, it's got to be a great, you know, we're just going to be a great turnout. And so they go back to the place of prayer. But as they were going to the place of prayer, they're confronted with this demon-possessed girl is what happens next in this passage And we'll read it in quite a sec. Actually, we'll read it now. So it says um, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. John G. Butler, um, commentator on this passage, said this Those prayer meetings by the riverside attracted a lot of attention from the adversary of our souls. He knows that prayer is a mighty weapon against his kingdom, and that if he can hinder the praying of the saints, he can hinder the work of the saints against his kingdom. Satan does not hinder the recreational programs, the suppers, the socials, the programs of the church, the parties, as much as he will hinder times of prayer. He is not bothered by a large attendance at church when it is for a supper or banquet or a ball game. But if a large crowd comes to pray, he will endeavor to make a disturbance of some sort to hinder the praying. Satan does not care about the church programs, any church. He does not care. He cares about the church praying. He cares about whether or not the church is a praying church. How many church prayer gatherings have you been to in your life? How many times have you set aside time to pray at the church? I know some of you will tell me, well, you pray every day, but there's something special when God's people come together to pray together when they're tired, worn out, and have a million things to do. And so why does the church come together? Because it's not about us. It's about what God wants to do through us and in us. Prayer changes us and somehow together moves mountains in the spiritual realm against the enemy. And so if you want, I'll be honest, I'm not even saying this jokingly. If you want keys to the church and you want to come here and pray, I will make you a copy of the key. I promise you. It is not something that, if you want to come, it is open doors. I will come. You want to come at midnight, feel free. You want the AC on, turn on the AC. I do not care. Because the enemy does not want us to be a praying church. The enemy does not want us to be a church that knows how to get on its knees and cry out for those who are lost, who walk in these doors, who are feeling overwhelmed, who are feeling like they can never do good enough, and yet they can come in and find freedom. Why? Because this is a place of prayer. And this time they go down to pray. And this girl is demon-possessed and is yelling, servants of the God most high who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She's mocking them, right? This girl is mocking them, and it's like she's saying, no one will get saved anymore. No one will believe you now. I know who you are, and I am not scared. It's what this? It feels like this is what this demon girl is saying, because she's following around Paul and Silas, the Paul, mocking them, saying, hey, You want salvation, go to these people. You want salvation, go to these people. And it's like this demon inside of this girl, or however many were in there, were just like, I know who you are, and I'm not afraid. This is my town. This is my city, Philippi. But after many days, Paul turns around and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, Paul and Silas find themselves in trouble, right? We're trying to get back to why were they in prison they find themselves in trouble because this girl who made her owner's money by fortune-telling could no longer tell fortunes. The demonic power was gone. So they complained to the rulers, and they have Paul and Silas beaten and arrested and put in chains, right? Because we see, because he said, right, and clean their wounds. So they were bleeding. There they they were fresh wounds there that night while they were in prison. And so they were beaten, thrown into the prison in prison doors, and all of them were locked up there that night. But verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. It's not even in my notes, but can you just like, as Pastor Isaac was reading, like I was trying to imagine that moment, right? Like these two guys in chains, middle of the night, bleeding, wounded, darkness, the smells are awful, just a horrible place. And yet in the middle of darkness and suffering, Yet you hear praying and singing of hymns to God. And suddenly, or it says, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened, right, they go to pray down to the river, and someone gets saved, they go to pray again, they go to the place of prayer, and then they get arrested, they pray in the midst of a prison, and sing hymns, and then the Lord causes an earthquake, and all the prison doors and prisoners are set free, G. Campbell Morgan says this, it was not a song of deliverance that these men were singing, but the song of perfect content and bondage. That is the supreme marvel of the Christian consciousness and the Christian triumph. Any man can sing when the prison doors are open and he is set free. The Christian soul sings in prison the Christian soul sings in the darkest moments of our lives. The Christian soul sings and prays when everything else seems pointless, when everything else seems like it's not going to work out. Yet in this moment, there's something within us that bubbles up and says, no matter what's in front of me, no matter the wounds on me, no matter what future holds, no matter whether or not I die or I live, as I'm going to sing in this moment and glorify God. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about God. And if he's was with me when I was praying at the river. He's going to be with me whenever I was arrested. And he's going to be with me now in the prison. And they weren't trying to get set free. They were just praising God. And yet in this moment, with their eyes fixed on Jesus, God opens all the prison doors and he causes an earthquake, something nobody would have ever thought. And it's all because why? They were praying and singing hymns. They went to the place of prayer. When in suffering, in prison, in fear, in doubt, in shame, what do you do? When you're in prison, in suffering, in fear, in doubt, in shame, what does your life look like? Are you singing and praying to God? Are you crying out to him? Or are you blaming him for you being in that moment altogether? John Stott Another great theologian said this. It is wonderful that in such pain, with lacerated backs and aching limbs, Paul and Silas at about midnight were praying and singing hymns to God. Not groans, but songs came from their mouths. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. No wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. Paul and Silas knew that prayer and praise re-centers us and helps us to remember that where we are in life is exactly where God wants us to be. Yet in the midst, because they knew God was up to something... Because they communed with God, they prayed, they spent time with him, they knew God was probably going to do something in the prison, that God was going to use them. I assume that they were saying, God, use me here. Let these other prisoners, let us, use, let us bring the gospel to them as well. Like, Lord, use us here in this prison. And like I said last week, when you realize being a Christian isn't about you, everything starts to make sense. When you realize... Being a Christian isn't about you. The Christian life starts to actually make sense. If they pray, then salvation and deliverance happen. How much more in prison when the enemy is trying to throw his worst at them, how much more should they pray and glorify God? And they did. So what happens next? The jailer who made sure they were locked up, wakes up and sees the doors open, right? He's probably freaking out, doesn't know what's going on, just major earthquake, all the doors open, all the chains clanking on the ground, right? He thinks they're all gone, so he wants to die honorably, so he goes to kill himself, until God stops him through Paul, and Paul says, we're all here. In this world, his life was saved from imminent death, but now God was going to save him from the world, or for the world to come. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He and his family got saved. And the same thing is if you want salvation today from this world and the world to come, Paul makes it clear, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So what would you have done truly in that prison? Would you have recanted your belief in Jesus? We have caused fights to go on. We have cursed to blame God. But yet, Paul and Silas did something different. Because if they thought that God's plan was somehow ruined, delayed, or something, then the jailer might have never been saved or his household. But they understood that it wasn't about them, it wasn't about their freedom, it was about those who were in that jail. Because that Philippian jailer may have never met Paul or heard the gospel, and yet God specifically put them there. And the enemy thought that he was doing a service and he was winning by throwing them in prison, but yet in that moment, he didn't realize that Paul and Silas were gonna be praying out loud and singing and that God was gonna cause an earthquake. And then that the Philippian jailer of all people, him and his household got saved. What a story. You see, those who are lost Those who are not saved are watching you, believer. When they see how you are shaken by circumstances and losing it, they can conclude that maybe there's very little to Christianity. That it's not really worth believing or following Jesus. But when they see us rising above our circumstances, praying and singing in the midst of the worst time of our life, they see that maybe this confidence in our God being up to something and glorifying him in our deepest trials, maybe they see that they actually are lacking something in their life. Maybe they see that there's something different about that Christian who is going through cancer and yet is telling people about Jesus. About that Christian who just lost so much and yet in that moment they sing the loudest in church yet at that moment they will tell anybody about jesus and how good he is not about their circumstances why because it's not about them you see prayer hits differently in times of trial god reveals himself even more for we are brought to the end of ourselves finally i've been reading a book um second go-round between uh the great English preacher, his name is Charles Spurgeon, and it was a former ex-slave who turned into a missionary pastor named Thomas Johnson. And, and just how the story of how a guy from England, the 1800s, and the slave, they were able, you know, he, he experiences freedom, and then he goes and becomes a pastor, and then he gets trained in uh, Spurgeon's pastor college, because Charles Spurgeon was a huge advocate for um, fighting against slavery here in the U.S., and so, but what many people don't realize as you read the book is that Charles Spurgeon, who was this great preacher, preached to nine, 8,000 people a week and was doing ministry galore, preached 4,000 sermons in his lifetime, like did all these great things. He was known as the prince of preachers, yet he battled this deep depression in his life because ever since he was little, he always dealt with this darkness in his life. And there was a moment in his ministry whenever they were gathering in this massive venue, about 12,000, 15,000 people. And this was before electricity, so just one person in this room, acoustics must have been amazing. But yet in this moment, somebody yelled in the very, very back of the room, fire, fire. So then all these people in the back of the room, because it was, you know, it was so big, nobody in the front knew what was going on. He was still preaching, and yet in this moment, there were all these people that were being trampled on, and there was a balcony where these people fell off, and so there was eight or nine people that died that day in that service that fell because somebody, right, yelled the enemy was using, was going against the kingdom of God, and so he had this deep depression and then he started to battle all these illnesses and where sometimes he couldn't write he had gout he had a bunch of stuff his wife was like an invalid almost where she could talk and and think but she couldn't move she had a lot of pain from whenever she had two kids and so there's this moment in the book where Spurgeon is about to meet Thomas or yeah Thomas Johnson for the first time and he turns to his wife and he says this he says I'm a torn soul she says, what do you mean? He says, I mean that I know the truths of God, that he is our treasure and that he is enough, even in the midst of suffering, and yet I am a torn soul. And she asked him, because you want a smoother plan in life, So they're both sitting there bandaged, can't get up, can't have the lights on, he says, perhaps I do. I simply do not want to be confined to this bed I do not want your body to be ravished with pain. I do not want for our lives to be marked with sickness. I do not want it. And yet, if this is what God has for us, I want to want it. Does this make sense? He lowered his head in frustration and opened his eyes to the tattered leather cover of his Bible. Sitting unopened, he said, I want to want this hard path that we're on. His wife, Susanna, says, And perhaps the worst thing that could happen to our family is to have our path made too smooth. We are on the harder road, Charles, the one less traveled. May God keep our hands to the plow on this rough road. Yes, he said confidently, and the further we are on the road, the less there is of it to bear. Sky who saw, who saw it all, prayed like no other, had an amazing church, did amazing things, impacted millions of people, and yet the same one who's saying, God, I want to want this path that I'm on. I want to want this, God, if this is what you're wanting in my life. And so then he reads in this next moment, Psalm 119, verse 50, which is this, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Psalm 119.50. I'll read it again. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. All the promises in the scripture should give us life and be our comfort no matter the affliction we're in. I cannot tell you when this thing will end, whatever you're walking through. I cannot tell you what it'll be like on the other side. But I can tell you from this story of Paul that it was prayer that was the channel. Man, you could see it all over. The prerequisite for all of these things that happen, Right, and ultimately, if you look at the life of Jesus, he was there praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. But despite the cross on the way, he said, your will be done. You and I will never die that death like he did. For he did it in our place. We may may never suffer like he did, yet one of my favorite verses reminds us that Jesus said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What joy? The joy that we can have too in the midst of any trial because as James says, right, to count it as pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. My hope for you is that you be known as like the early apostles, that they were uneducated common people who had spent time with Jesus. May your days start and end in prayer. May you seek prayer to comfort you instead of food or TV or whatever it is that you find comfort in, whether it's sex, drugs, cigarette, whatever it is, alcohol. That you may find prayer to be that thing that you run to first, to keep you rooted and grounded in the midst of life's crazy storms, that it's going to be okay. And that God is working whether you realize it or not. May you be the one that the enemy knows your place of prayer. That he knows what your prayer, where your prayer closet is. That he knows that when you get in your car, that you're going to make war against him. That when you go into your closet at home, that you're making war against him. That when you come to the church and you pray for those that you are making war against him. And that he knows that he needs to get you out of that car. He needs to get you out of that closet. He needs to get you out of the church so that you will not pray. Because when you pray, then you become something that he actually has to deal with. Because it's not prayer itself. It's the one who we are praying to. It's the God of all comfort. Paul tells us in Corinthians that we have been comforted so that we can comfort others. This is why we pray to the Lord, to know him, to know what he wants us to do, and to find strength and grace and mercy in him all the days of our life. And as Spurgeon said, right, that in the further we go down the road, the less there is of it. The further you walk with Jesus, the further you walk down that trial, is one day closer that trial is going to end, and that suffering will end. But it's just a matter of whether or not your eyes are fixed on you, your problems, or what God is trying to do through you, maybe as you're going to the place of prayer.
0: Thanks for listening to today's sermon. We hope this helps you on your journey to glorify God by enjoying Him and making disciples who make disciples.